you know, you call the show Breaking the Glass, and that's an interesting story. I went out for the mock trial team, and I got to the mock trial team, and I'm a senior, and they looked at me, and I'm six foot two, 280 pounds, and they said, well, we don't have any room for you. Uh-oh. And I said, well, all right, can I start my own team? <laughs> and so they said, well, if you get enough people, you can start your own team. Wow. And so I went out to my classmates and friends and uh, and we started our own team. And the majority of the, f- of the folks on my team, quote unquote, uh, look like me. Right. And our team. Uh, so that year, the Air Force Academy fielded two mock trial teams. Wow. And we went out to the West Coast competition, the West Coast Regionals. And our team ended up winning uh, the West Coast Regionals. And I was uh, <laughs> the number one attorney on the West Coast. Oh, uh, nice. Nice. Very nice. Man. And both teams actually went on to nationals. Both teams did very well at nationals. And I ended up being an All-American attorney. Wow. So you raised the level of the whole team is what you're trying to say. We did, man. We were, we were the uh, still, I believe, the most successful mock trial team the Air Force Academy has, has fielded, man. Wow. The team that you pulled together. Absolutely. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. My guest today is Rodney Bullard. Rodney is an extremely humble yet extraordinarily successful guy. He's a fellow Air Force Academy grad like me. It's where I met Rodney, and after the Air Force Academy, he served honorably in the Air Force and got his law degree from Duke Law School. Also during his Air Force career, he did a very selective program called the White House Fellowship. He'll tell you all about it in the interview, but as an example of the kind of person who gets into the program, besides Rodney, one of his fellow fellows is now a governor in the United States. Rodney also worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Atlanta area. And while he was doing that work, he also did a great amount of community service in the Atlanta area because his boss encouraged him by saying, we cannot jail our way out of the problems that we deal with day to day. That work led him to a chance encounter with someone in his network who introduced him to the CEO of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy. In his conversations with Mr. Cathy, He talked about the work he was doing in the Atlanta area for community service on the west side of Atlanta. And the CEO said that he wanted Rodney to start the Chick-fil-A Foundation with him. During that work, he's done amazing work bringing together corporations and community members who've been working hard to improve places like the west side of Atlanta for many years. And then the foundation itself has spread beyond Atlanta to the entire country, touching and improving the lives of very many people, including over 5 million young people. Based upon the principles he's used to succeed, Rodney's also written a book called Heroes Wanted that we discuss in a lot of detail. You'll see how he's developed a formula for how you can be a hero, even if it's just the three feet around you, touching the people you touch every day, in your community at large, or if the opportunity arises like it did for Rodney, you can have an even larger impact on a national or global scale because, like he says, heroes are wanted. Now, I go into a lot of detail right at the beginning of the interview listing out the several, not several, the numerous accolades that Rodney's had over the course of his career. So you hear a bit about him then. You'll love the interview like I did. 
So please enjoy my interview with Rodney Bullard. My guest today is Rodney Bullard. He is the executive director of the Chick-fil-A Foundation and the vice president of community affairs. Um, I just want you to feel the weight of what Rodney uh, is about. I, I've known him since uh, I've been uh, at the Air Force Academy. We went to school together. He graduated a couple years before me. And I've seen his career and, and talked with him a little bit along the way and seen what he's done. But just listen to just this list so you can get a feel for who we're about to talk with today. At Chick-fil-A, he's on the leadership council. He was on the Chick-fil-A leadership marketing, Chick-fil-A marketing leadership team. Other than that, he is an Atlanta Rotary Club member, Harvard Business School Club, the Atlanta chapter, Atlanta Business Chronicles, most admired nonprofit executives in 2017, Duke Law School's Young Alumnus of the Year in 2016, Atlanta's Who's Who of 50 Influential Nonprofit Leaders in 2016 and 2017, the Bridge Builders Award presented by the Atlanta Area Technical College, Trailblazers Award, the Leadership Georgia in 2015, the National Bar Association Trailblazer 40 into 40 Award in 2014, Atlanta Tribune honored as a man of dis- distinction in 2014, Who's Who in Black Atlanta Game Changer Award in 2014, Atlanta Business Chronicle 40 into 40 Business Leaders in 2013, 40 under 40 University of Georgia alumni in 2013, Atlanta Business League Men of Influence Award in 2013, Leadership Atlanta in 2012, Georgia Trend Magazine 40 under 40 in 2011, named one of 10 Outstanding Atlantis for 2010, the Salvation Army National Advisory Board, Junior Achievement USA National Board of Directors, Professional Association of Georgia Educators Foundation. Uh, Educators Foundation Board of Directors Leadership Atlanta Board of Directors Board of Directors at University of Georgia Terry School of Business Emory Board of Visitors Fellowship of Christian Athletes National Board of Trustees Air Force Academy Falcon Foundation Trustee The list is so long of accomplishments of this brother I'm so proud to know him So please welcome today my guest Rodney Bullard Rodney welcome to the show Thank you my friend It is truly a pleasure to spend time and to connect with you, man, as always. Uh, so I'm, we're glad to have you on, Rodney. We're looking forward to uh, hearing about how you break the glass. The way we start off the show is to do a little bit of a lightning round background. So tell us a bit about your story and what life was like for Rodney going up. Just give us the highlights of your childhood and maybe through college, including just any moments that um, that shaped your life. Absolutely, man. I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. My father went to Morehouse College. My mother went to Clark Atlanta University. And really just growing up in the cradle of the civil rights movement, I got a chance to see a little bit of everything. I got a chance to see doctors and lawyers and politicians that looked like me. And I aspired for greatness because I got a chance to really understand that that could be me. I also in my neighborhood had people who were strung out on drugs and uh, and through my father's ministry, I saw a number of people who had difficulties and needed assistance. And so uh, through my father in particular, I learned a great deal of compassion for people. And so I, I realized that all of that really summed up to leadership, that compassion, ambition, uh, a desire to do more for yourself personally and a, a desire to do more for your community, some to leadership. And so that led me to the Air Force Academy. Uh, at the Air Force Academy, I played football and also was uh, on the mock trial team. 
And uh, that led me to Duke Law. I was and blessed. Real quick, Rodney, I didn't know you were on the mock trial team at the academy. It seemed Absolutely. like you did pretty well with it when you were there. I did, man. So I made the mistake of praying to God that uh, I would be All-American when I went to the Air Force Academy. Okay. And I was actually thinking being an All-American football player, but I wasn't specific. <laughs> and so uh, so God said, uh, your senior year, you're going to blow out your knee. Oh. You're going to have to rely upon me. And so I blew out my knee, actually, uh, my junior year. And I wasn't able to play my entire senior season. Mm. Uh, my mother reminded me that I went to the Air Force Academy for two reasons. One, football, but uh, the second one was because they had a mock trial team. Right. And, you know, you call this show Breaking the Glass, and that's an interesting story. I went out for the mock trial team. Uh, my knee actually was still healing, so I wasn't able. I still had a limp. And I got to the mock trial team, and I'm a senior, and they looked at me, and I'm six foot two, 280 pounds, and they said, well, we don't have any room for you. Uh-oh. And I said, okay. They said, we have a team. That team has been impaneled for some time. And I said, well, all right, can I start my own team? <laughs> and so they said, well, if you get enough people, you can start your own team. Wow. And so I went out to my classmates and friends, and uh, and we started our own team. And the majority of the, f- of the folks on my team, quote unquote, uh, look like me. Right. And our team. Uh, so that year, the Air Force Academy fielded two mock trial teams. Wow. And we went out to the West Coast competition, the West Coast Regionals, and our team ended up winning uh, the West Coast Regionals. And I was. Uh, <laughs> The number one attorney on the West Coast. Oh, uh, nice. Nice. Very nice. Man. And both teams actually went on to nationals. Both teams did very well at nationals. And I ended up being an All-American attorney. And actually, the young lady who captained the other team, uh, Linnell Latendra, uh, is now head of the law, the legal department at the Air Force Academy. Wow. Wow. So you raised the level of the whole team is what you're trying to say. We did, man. We were, we were the uh, still, I believe, the most successful mock trial team the Air Force Academy has, has fielded, man. Wow. The team that you pulled together. Absolutely. Did these folks like have that you pulled on have experience in mock trial? They had never done it before. A friend of mine, uh, Brent Kelly. Yeah. He was an actor. Brent was, is, was from L.A. And so I knew I needed witnesses. Okay. Act and Brent would get up there and he would act with the best of them. He would shed a tear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I needed folks with personality. Rico Tippett. Oh my goodness! So uh, Rico went out and he was there and we had a great time. And uh, and Shay. Oh wow. And Shay uh, was one of the attorneys. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we had a we had a great time, man. It was truly fun, uh, and we were successful. And people didn't know. That we were from the Air Force Academy. They thought we were from Howard. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Um, were there any, just to, to backstep uh, a little bit, were there any formative moments growing up that made you want to go into the law or that had you aiming towards a mock trial? What pushed you from that in your childhood? Yeah, yeah. so I, uh, eighth grade, Miller Grove Junior High School, Mrs. Bennett's eighth grade class, Mrs. Bennett decided that she wanted to do a mock trial in class. And so she split us into two groups, 
prosecution and defense. And she allowed us to object and she allowed us to to really just go through the motions of a trial. And I realized that this was just who I was, that I fell in love with it. And so we started the first mock trial team actually in high school at Redan High School. And, and that was formed off of the students within that class at in junior high school. And so we were, I was all state uh, mock trial. Wow. And then I was uh, an all county football player. And so uh, I knew I wanted to find some place that could feed that itch. And, it, and it's interesting, even when I was playing football, I remember um, at the Air Force Academy, it's probably my sophomore year, one of the uh, instructors at the Air Force Academy allowed us to do the same thing that Mrs. Bennett had allowed us to do. Mm. And again, you know, I always felt the eyes of not judgment, but stereotype. Yeah. And so I said, raised my hand. I said, well, I'll, I'll participate in this exercise. And I remember the other young man who was supposed to be so bright and so smart, he started off and, and he was just going down the wrong direction. So I objected and I knew every objection to make and right. I knew the proper objection to make. And the teacher looked at me very differently after that. Mm. Uh, and so I learned that, you know, look, I'm a big, dark black man. Right. I recognize uh, sometimes people have these preconceived notions about who I am. Right. And I enjoy proving them wrong. I see. You prove uh, them all the way wrong in, in uh, that sophomore year and on the, the team that you put together. Yeah, man. So it was a, it was a blessing. And really, it was God, man. If I had not blown out my knee, I probably wouldn't have gone out for the mock trial team. Hmm. I probably would not have gone on to law school in the same fashion that I did. And so uh, God knows what's best. And sometimes he, he hobbles you to put you on the path he wants you to be on. Yeah. And he gives you divine appointments. I remember when I was in high school, um, I was in a speech class. I want to take an easy class. I was doing pretty well academically, but I wanted an easy class my senior year, you know, to kind of, to balance out a bunch of AP courses. And, um, and I, so I took a speech class, but one of the debate cats came in and was talking about something. And I was, and I was like, y'all are the debate team. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this and that. So I started arguing back and forth with them. And the speech teacher was also the, the debate coach. And based upon me arguing with them, um, she asked me to be on the debate team. Mm. And I ended up, uh, like being on the debate team, the guy who uh, who had been on the debate team for four years had never made it past the regular, you know, local competitions. Just in his like fifth or sixth meet that year, built up enough cumulative points to make it to the state competition. Mm. In, in my first or second debate that year, I got like second or third place and qualified for the state competition, <laughs> you know, at a, going in there. And I think it's just like you, you know, like you, whatever the opportunity comes, you got to shine. You can't shrink back from it so that you can kind of, you know, make the most of it and make an impact where people think you may not be able to. Absolutely, man. You said you went on to Duke Law School. Um, What led you to go there? And that's a prestigious school. I remember seeing you getting in there at the time. Uh, What what made you pick Duke in particular? So I really thought that I was going to go to another law school. I actually was stationed at Hanscom Air Force Base in Boston. 
and I was blessed to uh, to audit some classes with Charles Ogletree, legendary professor at Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. And again, my mother said, you should apply to Duke. And I applied to Duke and she also said, she said, well, you should take that application and you should hand deliver it to Duke. Uh, and I previously, when I was working at the Air actually working at the Air Force Academy as in minority enrollment, I previously had visited Durham, uh, where Duke is, and I stopped in and I just looked at the law school, met some folks in the admissions office. And so I had at least a warm contact to, to travel back and hand my application in. And I did that. Uh, fast forward, I'm waiting on admission and notice of admission, and I'm living in Boston at Hanscom. And one of the attorneys, one of the JAG attorneys at Hanscom, uh, said, hey, Rodney, I hear you want to go to law school. I went to the Air Force Academy and I went to Duke Law. Yeah. And the dean of Duke Law is coming to town and you should come with me. Hmm. Uh, and so I went to this meeting and there weren't that many African-Americans in the room, but there was one other and uh, the guy by the name of Dennis Shields. And Dennis Shields was the newly hired dean of admissions at Duke Law. Wow. And Dean Shields said, I just saw your application, Rodney, uh, and I just want to let you know I'm interested in you coming to Duke Law. What can I do to get you to come? And I said, well, you can give me some money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so within a week or so, Dean Shields uh, had sent me a letter of acceptance and he had helped me get into Duke Law. And wow. so. Uh, I'm very grateful to Dean Shields. He helped a number of people at the at Duke, but also at the University of Michigan. And uh, and Duke was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, it was a small law school. It was a formative law school for me. I got a chance to do a number of things there. Uh, I was the governor for the American Bar Association, so all the law schools in the Southeast. And then I was on the uh, law school division board, so one of three law students who oversaw all the law stu- all all the law schools nationally, excuse me, and uh, and that was a great experience because I got to meet law students from across the country and now, have friends and contacts. You like it, you're sliding by some incredibly amazing achievements. Um, what what do you think it was in you that not only allowed you to succeed in school academically? but to get connected, to be in positions of leadership. And I ask that because I'm sure those leadership positions, like you said, it, it introduced you to connections of people who had connections. Um, and it also gave you markers of um, leadership ability, success, effectiveness that carried you throughout other parts of your career. So what, what was it about you? What characteristics do you think helped you accomplish getting in those roles uh, like you were on the on the bar association and the board of governors and all those different things. I think the Air Force Academy taught me that really leadership makes the difference, and that our obligation is to lead. And you know we can be technically proficient, we can be academically proficient, but all of that should should flow into something, and that something really has to be leadership. Uh, And I also think I understand and understood at the time the importance of networking, Mm -hmm. 
the importance of relationship, the importance of meeting people and letting them know your goals and seeing how you can benefit them. And so I did that through law school and was very intentional about that through law school. So what did that look like? I I think some people hear the term networking and it's sort of this vague concept. Um, And and what you're saying, I think now could cross apply to probably any school or context. But what did networking look like for you as a law student to be able to make the connections you felt were necessary? No, you're absolutely right. And a lot of people, uh, I think, see networking as a bad word. They see it as schmoozing. They see it as um, a substitute for something else. Um, they see it as a talent that is uh, that somehow is unsavory. Mm. And I'm not saying that you should schmooze and I'm not saying that you should connect with people and sell your soul to someone that you just don't connect with or like or enjoy time with. But as a law student, if there was a, an event, then I was there. If there was uh, an opportunity to visit with a professor and get to know them better, then I took advantage of that opportunity. Uh, I knew that the Bar Association was where lawyers were, and I needed mentors, and I needed people who I could learn from. And so I went there, and others at who were in law school with me did not. And so that made a difference uh, because Duke Law wasn't represented, and I was the only one there, and they were like, oh, we're happy to have you. Yeah. And so it gave me an opportunity to shine. And so I do think that as we get older, we realize that our networks and our relationships, and really I emphasize the word relationships, I think leadership is about two things. It's about results and it's about relationships. Right. And manifest itself in that we have to take care of the mission, whatever that is. That might be winning cases. That might be uh, something very different than that. But there always is going to be an element of people involved in that. And so we have to take care of the people. We have to have good relationships as well. And so I think if you consider results and relationships and put that paradigm on almost anything, that 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 will be successful. So you I'm sure in terms of results, I'm sure your grades uh, were great. I'm sure your your effectiveness at your craft in law school was was stellar. What's one specific thing that you did or do to maintain a connection in your network, um, a, like either how you serve them or uh, how you just stay connected to them in a way that's not schmoozy and not sort of use just using them? Yeah. So I can't say my grades were the greatest. They were not bad, but they were not the greatest. Uh, 4.0, I, I wasn't number one in my class. I definitely wasn't near the back. I, I was a strong student, but One of the things that I have learned from people who network well is that birthdays matter. Mm. People love to be recognized on their birthday. And Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they make it easy. Right. And even if you just go out and say happy birthday to somebody via a phone call, via text, via a Facebook message, that that makes a difference. Mm. Uh, and it shows that you care. And the, the first rule of relationship is if I want to be, if I want to have a friend, I must first be friendly. Right. 
And so just going out and connecting with people in that way, how can I help you? Uh, it's not about what can you do for me? How can I help you? How can I benefit you? Um, and if you think about it in that way, that's building relationship. It, it may not come back to you from that person, but it will come back to you. And if, in fact, we are about helping others, which is really our ordained purpose on this earth, then we'll fulfill everything God has in store for us. And frankly, if no one else but God takes care of me, then I'm OK. Yeah, I, I think he's taken pretty good care of of you up to this point. Uh, you, like we said, you've done really well. And and Duke Law was good. You took that law degree and brought it to the Air Force um, as a trial attorney. And um, what I what I'd like to hear more about, though, in your Air Force career is you're a White House fellow. Yes. Um, what does it mean to be a White House fellow? And what did you do during that period in your career? Yes. So many people know White House fellows, but don't know about the White House fellowship. Hmm. We know Colin Powell. We know Sanjay Gupta. Uh, we know Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, we know White House fellows. And I had a mentor, Will Gunn, Colonel Will Gunn, who went to the Air Force Academy and also to Harvard Law School. He was a JAG, retired as a JAG. And I had heard about the White House Fellowship, but I didn't know much about it. And when I found out that Colonel Gunn, Will, was a White House fellow, I asked him about it and he encouraged me to apply. And I remember one person saying, well, Rodney, you know, you're a fine attorney, but that program is for superstars. Right. And I said as humbly as I could, well, that's why I'm applying. (laughs) And, you know, the first time I did not get into the program. Right. Uh, And the second time I applied and I got in and it was it was perfect. It was the perfect time. I was with the perfect cohort. And the White House Fellowship was started by Lyndon, President Lyndon Johnson. Um, the purpose of the fellowship was to bring young people, relatively young people, who had distinguished themselves relatively early in their careers to Washington, D.C., to give them a sense of leadership from the highest perch, to allow them to work uh, for or near a president. I worked for the head of NASA. Yeah. And to give them that, that experience, that network as well, and then to send them back to their respective communities so that they can uh, they can spread those seeds of leadership in their hometowns. Is it only and for it, military members? It is not. In fact, the majority of White House fellows are not military members. Okay. We had a class of 12 And we did have a large number of military members. Uh, Obviously, we were at war. We were in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time in which I went through in 2005 and 2006. Uh, My closest friend from the fellowship is now uh, governor of the state of Missouri. Hmm. Uh, He was a Navy SEAL at the time. And so of the 12 people in our class, uh, five of us were in the military. Wow. Uh, and since then, one of the things that I am I'm most pleased with about the fellowship is that since my time uh, in the White House Fellowship, a number of brothers and sisters have come through uh, from the Air Force Academy to be White House fellows. Right. And so that has been a, a nice line 
uh, continued relationship and fellowship as well. But it's a great program. You uh, you have a work placement. You also get a chance for an educational program where we travel uh, domestically and internationally. And we also have lunches with, with wonderful speakers. Uh, and you get a chance to intimately ask them questions. But the fellowship really is about that. It's about connecting with the people in your class yeah. and being close to them. Just today, I have spoken to three of my classmates. Oh, wow. text with, and I talked to another who's a state representative in uh, Mississippi, and I talked to another one who's here in Atlanta doing well. Wow. So, so what, very, what's, what's one... Um, is there a particular experience where you got to see sort of the height of power as it exists there that just kind of stays with you? The first time we met President Bush. Mm. And I think that just just something awe inspiring, regardless of your politics, about sitting down at a table in the White House with just 13 people, your peers and President Bush. And I remember sitting right next to him and I thought, man, I'm sitting next to the leader of the free world. Yeah. And that experience, as simple, as humble as it was, was just a great, amazing experience. And he was very authentic in his discussion about being president of the United States yeah, and the load and the burden but also the privilege yeah. of being president. Uh, and for me, that informed, again, this notion of leadership and this notion of, you know, somebody has to do it. Why not me? Yeah. Well, you um, you obviously gleaned a lot from that experience and it stayed with you. Um, you served a lot of time in the military as an attorney. Um, and we have had a number of attorneys on the show. So I, you, you come from a different direction, though, where you were an assistant United States attorney after your time in the Air Force. Um, what, what is that, what is the weight of that job, um, as it relates to, cause you work for the department of justice. Um, and what is that, what is the weight of that job? What was that experience like for you? So I did, I worked for the department of justice. I was an AUSA here in Atlanta an assistant United States attorney here in Atlanta. Uh, my boss was Sally Yates. Oh, wow. Uh, and developed a close relationship with Sally and, uh, and still close to Sally and Comer, her husband. Um, wow. So obviously, Sally went on to be uh, United States Attorney General. Sure. Uh, and the weight of that job was twofold. One, there was a weight in prosecuting the cases and ensuring that we struck hard blows, but not foul blows against uh, the opposition. We, we really were the keepers of the integrity of the courtroom. Uh, and many times these were big cases and many times we were prosecuting, uh, people and we were breaking up families. We were pulling fathers and mothers away from, from children. And we were sending them away for significant periods of time. Right. Uh, federal time is very different than, than state or local or DA time. Um, but the flip side that was, what was the impact on the community? And Sally had a phrase. She said, we can't gel our way out of the problems that we have in our communities. Mm. We could prosecute as much as we wanted to, but those problems were still going to exist. And so we had to do something else 
beyond just prosecution. We couldn't abdicate our role in prosecuting, but we had to do something else. And so she asked me to start a program, a uh, community affairs program, where we went out and we did things in the community and we helped solve those problems. Wow. And that was an absolute uh, thrill for me. I loved it. Uh, and it was another avenue for, of leadership as well. And that really led to me being at Chick-fil-A and led to my current role. Now, um, before we talk about that transition, I'm curious, um, what what do you think was the, the most challenging part of being an AUSA? There is a fair amount of isolation. Hmm. And when I say that, you know, your cases are tried in isolation. Your cases, for the most part, are investigated in isolation. People don't know the outcomes of your cases for the most part. Some do make the news. I've, I've had one or two make the news, but for the most part, they don't. Uh, and so you toil in relative anonymity. Yeah. Uh, and so that can be difficult for some, and for some, they, they relish it. But I think that can be difficult for some. Got it. How did you deal with it? How were you able to overcome that? I always kept one foot outside of the office. Yeah. Always kept one foot. Again, going back to the networking piece, I I knew I loved the, being an AUSA, but I didn't want that to be my complete world. Yeah. Uh, later in life, um, I went back to the U.S. Attorney's Office. There was a, a defense attorney, actually, who was a federal defense attorney. Basically, same thing as me, just on the federal side. And uh, and he committed suicide. Oh, no. And I don't know the exact reasons why he committed suicide, but it could be because, you know, if you let that be your only world. Yeah. Then that can be difficult. And and I've learned that in life, regardless of whatever job I'm in, that there is a huge world out there. And when I was an Air Force officer, it couldn't just be my world to be an Air Force officer. I had to have a foot someplace else to remind myself that there was something else. And, and the same thing, uh, I think, held true as AUSA. How do you, so I want you to speak about this as you talk about your transition, because from here you, you move into Chick-fil-A, which when I saw it, I, I didn't get how you went from the law to Chick-fil-A. Um, yeah. But can you talk about that and also... The thing that I wonder about and struggle with, particularly because I have small children and I'm married, um, I know you're married and have a small child. Um, how do you balance that out? So what was the transition yeah. like? And then um, and then if you can talk about it, let's talk a little bit about how you how you're able to do it all, be in the community, be at home and do your job really well. Yes. So I'll, I'll start by answering that, man. I have a very uh, forgiving and loving wife. And that helps. Uh, but the transition from law to Chick-fil-A really was, again, going back to this matter of relationship. So I'll give you the, the long story, but not too long. Uh, I had just gotten back to Atlanta, was working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, was working in the community now because Sally asked me to. Yeah was selected as one of 10 outstanding young Atlantans. I sent an email to a friend of mine who was now the ambassador to Trinidad. Okay. Uh, B. Welters. I had met 
Mrs. Welters because through the White House Fellowship, uh, a friend of mine introduced us. Uh, the Welters, Tony and B, were early supporters of President Obama. She became ambassador to Trinidad. She then says, hey, Rodney, I'm glad you're doing well. I would love for you to come down to Trinidad and come speak. I've got Colin Powell coming and I've got Justice Clarence Thomas coming. And I said, hmm, something's not connecting. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to have powerful people, powerful brothers down there. You know, something's different, though. <laughs> I might be the odd one out. <laughs> so, so I said, I'm happy to come. But uh, would you allow me to bring some more house students? Because I really, you know, I want to be able to connect with students. She wanted me to speak to kids and students. And uh, at this point, you know, I wasn't old, but I wasn't a college age student either. So right. brought two students from Morehouse. And we had a wonderful time. And one day we saw a chick. I'm sorry. We saw a Kentucky fried chicken uh, in Trinidad. And it, the Kentucky fried trick, chicken was just packed. Kind of find out it's one of the highest grossing Kentucky fried chickens in the, in the world. Wow. Uh, and I made a joke. I said, do you have Chick-fil-A here? I said, if you love Kentucky fried chicken, then you've got to just be bustling over for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and so they said, no, we've never heard of Chick-fil-A. And I knew that. I was just joking. But uh, but I came back to Atlanta and I told that story. And a friend of mine said, well, we need to put a Chick-fil-A in Trinidad. Uh. I, said, I said, no, we don't. They said, well, let me introduce you to somebody. Hmm. And so I met a gentleman by the name of Reverend Al Mead. Okay. And Al Mead, I had breakfast with Al Mead, and Al Mead knew the Kathy family, the, the family that owns Chick-fil-A. Right. And he said, well, I want to introduce you to Dan Kathy, uh, the president of Chick-fil-A. Wow. And I thought he was just joking. And he called me one day out the blue. He said, I want to introduce you to Dan tomorrow. I had to change my trial schedule. I had to change all sorts of stuff, but I, I wanted to meet Dan. This was sure. an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. Yeah. And so I met Dan. I started to talk to Dan about what I was doing in the community. And that led to a conversation about starting the Chick-fil-A Foundation. Wait, 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 wait. All this time, I thought you came on to the Chick-fil-A Foundation. No. You started the Chick-fil-A Foundation? You started it, man. Every brick has been a brick that we have laid. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Chick-fil-A Foundation, Community Affairs, every brick has been a brick we've laid. And we, it's been a blessing, man. It's been a, an entrepreneurial opportunity. So you were talking uh, to him about the Chick-fil-A Foundation. How did that conversation go? So basically, we were talking about the work I was doing uh, for Sally uh, in communities on the west side of Atlanta and the need for corporations to be a part of that. Right. And that really, we weren't going to solve anything because we, government had been trying to do it for years. Mm. Um, the people in the community didn't have the resources to do it, although well-intentioned and capable, didn't have the resources to do it by themselves. And Dan, at the same time, was going on a similar journey of learning about the west side of Atlanta. Okay. And, and, so, and the west side of Atlanta, for those who don't know, what's particular about it? Yeah, so it, it really is, it leads in all the wrong categories. Yeah. It is the largest open air 
a heroin market in the South. Wow. It is, uh, if you take the highest murder rate in the state of Georgia, highest uh, drug rate uh, for a time, highest foreclosure rate, uh, if you go down, 30% or more of the houses are vacant. Jeez. And many of them are burned out. Wow. And you can see all sorts of commerce if you spend enough time on the streets. Right. Of, of the west side of Atlanta. Not necessarily not the, the right kind of forces. commerce. No, not necessarily the right kind of commerce uh, at all. So You said it's not the uh, only poor neighborhood? It's not the only poor neighborhood in Atlanta. And I don't, I don't ever want to give that impression. But what is also... It's not the only poor neighborhood in America. Right. Uh, you know, if you you can find a West Side in Charlotte, in L.A., in Houston, in Detroit, in wherever you pick the city and you can find a West Side. And right. we've forgotten those neighborhoods. We've forgotten those people. Uh, we've moved on upwardly and to the right. And it's our obligation not to forget them. So you you were working there as an AUSA. Can you talk well, about, like, to give us a feel for what you were telling uh, Mr. Kathy, what was a typical project you were working on? What's something you were telling, this is what I'm doing, to, that had him obviously move you to, to starting the, the foundation? Yeah, so we had started a program where we realized that a number of a number of people were being arrested on the west side of Atlanta and then returning to the west side of Atlanta. And within three years of getting out of jail, returning home to the west side of Atlanta, within three years, 75% of them were back in jail. Wow. And so what was behind that? And so we started this, this fair, basically, where as you were leaving jail, re-entering society, you would come, and we had it at a church, uh, and you would come, and there would be services for you there. So if you needed help with education, you could get a service there. You could sign up with somebody. If you needed help um, like with housing, some sort yeah. of housing, workforce development, yeah. all of that. Now, what we noticed, because we had a sign-in sheet, what we noticed was a number of the uh, of the folks would just walk past the sign-in sheet. Okay. And at first we thought they just didn't want to sign up or they didn't see it. Many of them couldn't read and write. Mm. And so then we brought in literacy. Yeah. Assistance. And so Dan was moved by, by this affair and we, and we had, uh, we spoke to them first. We, we, gave them a sense of the importance of this fair and why we were there. And we had a collaboration of federal, state, um, and corporate sponsors as well, because we felt like this was, this was a community. It wasn't just a federal problem or just a, a local city problem or just a state problem. We needed everybody on board. And you were pulling, you were kind of the lead that Sally put there to pull all this together? Absolutely. And so this was our brainchild. Wow. Uh, we had gone to Chicago. We had seen something similar, not quite the same. And we made it in our own Atlanta way. And uh, and we started and it went very well. Uh, and since then, since I've been at Chick-fil-A, we've been able to start even more programs. I mean, right now we have a we have a very, very robust 
effort. So tell me before you go there, what, what did you start with as the vision for the foundation? Uh, Either that was in your brain or that you and and Dan came up with together. What was your vision? So my vision for the foundation was that corporations have a role to play in the leadership of a city, a community that you do have a, a government component. You have a mayor, you have a city council, et cetera. Uh, and then you also have a nonprofit component. There are nonprofit organizations, but then you have a corporate component and corporate component funds many of the other aspects. And I saw companies like Coca-Cola. I saw companies like Georgia Pacific participate and be at this table and help solve problems. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I don't see this as charity. I don't see this as philanthropy. I see this as leadership. Uh, no different than leadership that you would ask from a government official. Right. Uh, we just happen to be corporate officials. And it's another aspect of society, right? Uh, Coca-Cola solves a problem with tasty beverages. Apple solves a problem with uh, technology resources that people need to live. You just saw that there's another problem they can solve in community and society, which happens to do with folks who aren't doing as well as maybe the rest of us are. And they can solve that problem too. That's right. Because we have resources. And I said earlier, we have the third largest number of corporate headquarters in the nation. So in, why Atlanta. Can't we bring all those, in Atlanta. And so why don't we bring all those resources together? Yeah. And so how did you go about reaching out? To, so at, so do we, is this, um, at Chick-fil-A, were you reaching out to other corporate entities or was it a solely Chick-fil-A focused thing? So at Chick-fil-A, since we've gotten to Chick-fil-A, our first initiative was an initiative that Dan really wanted to do that became kind of the the microcosm of what we just talked about. Okay. Uh, Dan had gone to Seattle and he had seen a facility uh and we now call that facility the Discovery Center. So I call it that for, for lack of a better phrase. But the, uh, the Discovery Center was a place in which kids could come and experience financial literacy and entrepreneurship by considering it like a mall. And within the mall, they ran the commerce. These kids in middle school ran the commerce of this mall. So they had to they had to balance their checkbook. They had to market. They had to receive sales. They had then the opportunity to go buy things elsewhere. And so we, from a Chick-fil-A perspective, partnered with Junior Achievement of Georgia. Right. We said we want to create a facility to teach kids financial literacy. Uh, Because if they can dream, if they can have greater exposure to finances, then they have a greater chance of pulling themselves out of poverty or pulling themselves uh, into something that that they feel comfortable in. Right. So we went to company after company to start this. And after about six months, we were able to raise enough money from the corporate community to build a 40,000 square foot facility. It is uh, to really renovate. We didn't build a facility. We renovated uh, a space within the Georgia World Congress Center. Right. And there are two sides to it. So one is called BizTown and another uh, is called Finance Park. And so in uh, in BizTown, kids come in and they have this experience of they might be the operator, owner of a Chick-fil-A 
and we have real Chick-fil-A product there and they have to sell it to their peers. Wow. And they sell it and they receive money. Their peers have to pay the money, mock money, of course, but still money. And then there's a Delta kiosk and then there's a um, there's a SunTrust bank as well. And they have to deposit their money in SunTrust bank and then they have to balance their checkbooks. And you hear the marketing and there's UPS, all Atlanta companies, and there's uh, healthcare, Jackson Healthcare as well. And so they learn business in a very tactile way. When do they do this? So like, is it uh, an event that they're going to or is this an ongoing operation? What's the setup there? No, excellent question, my friend. So what is unique about this is not only do we partner with the corporate community and junior achievement, but the school system, now the government component of it came in and three different school systems, three large school systems mandate that this is a part of their curriculum in sixth and eighth grade. Wow. And so it is a 20 lesson curriculum and 19 of the lessons are actually in the classroom. The 20th lesson is in this facility that I'm talking about now. And that's when they come in and based off of what they've learned before, they now get to sell and learn and and actually exhibit marketing Mm. and operations. And they have, they have adults who are there who are helping them as well. Right. But it's fun for them. Uh, And then on the other side in finance park, which I think is even more remarkable, an older kid in eighth grade, they have more of a uh, microeconomic experience. They're, they're given an identity. So they have two kids. They have a wife. They have X income. Equifax, an Atlanta company, they give them uh, a credit score. Right. And you hear the kids saying, man, I got a 700 credit score. I can get anything in here. <laughs> and you hear some saying, man, I got a 580, man. I can't get much. And so Publix, they can shop at Publix. They can go to Kia. Uh, Kia has a plant nearby here in Atlanta. Uh, They can go. um, They can do pretty much all the life functions that you and I have to do as adults. Right. They have to do their housing and food and uh, medical and buying a car, et cetera. They have to do there and they have to make 18 life decisions. Hmm. And so they really fully embrace well, you know what, man? I thought $50,000 was a lot of money. Right. And I realized that's not really able to sustain the lifestyle that I want. Hmm. So what jobs allow me to make what I really want to make to sustain the job or the lifestyle that I want? Wow. And so they learn about that as well. And so now 35,000 children go to that facility uh, in Atlanta. Every year? Every year. Wow. Annually. And we have fast forwarded to uh, Junior Achievement has built another facility uh, north of the city. We are a partner there uh, between the two facilities. Seventy five thousand children go through those two facilities alone. Chick-fil-A now is invested in uh, other facilities throughout the nation where we have upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand children go through those facilities as well. Oh, my goodness. Uh, And really, just from the conversation Dan and I had, we now have a foundation that has touched over 5 million children this year alone. Jeez. Uh, We've got programs all over the country. We've got a program called Leader Academy that's in over 700 schools. We have uh, that teaches leadership and teaches uh, children responsibility and giving back. 
they have and they have a, a program called a, a pay it forward program at the end of it. And so they have to come up with something that really enriches their community at the end of their seven week curriculum in Leader Academy. And so you have kids coming up with things like uh, senior to senior proms where seniors in high school take seniors being elderly seniors hmm. out and spend time with them. Uh, doing things for children on the autistic spectrum, all sorts of wonderful things that these kids are coming up with to benefit their communities. I got a, uh, a couple of questions around this, man, because this is amazing. So I, I want to dig into a little bit. What have you seen? So for, I guess first sort of uh, logistical question, how long have you been running this program, The this yeah. particular one? So the Leader Academy program has been running now for three years. So I'm sure you've had the chance to see some impact of it, maybe not the long term, but what impact have you seen from folks who go through this program? So uh, there's one young lady by the name of Akila, and she uh, actually came up with a program where she mentored at her school, Westlake uh, High School here in Atlanta. Uh, she mentored children uh, who were younger than her, girls specifically who were younger than her, uh, and mentored them into going to college and doing more with their lives. And and so that was that's a program that was has been recognized nationally. Uh, Oprah recognized her for for what she was doing. Um, and so it's just been a great program. For and so many she was kids. a high school student who came through your leadership academy. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. We've also created a program called Chick-fil-A Fellows and at Chick-fil-A Fellows. Many of the leader academy students now become Chick-fil-A fellows and we've kind of fashioned it after the White House Fellowship. Wow. Where they have an education component. We're about to take a group out to Google. Uh, they're going to go to Harvard. They're going to go to Disney. Uh, they're kids from all over the city. Some kids from L.A., some kids from Pittsburgh, some kids from uh, the west side of Atlanta. They're from wealthy areas. They're from not wealthy areas. They're black. They're white. They're Hispanic. Uh, they're, they are as diverse as they can be. And so we're proud of that program, which is really a corollary to Leader Academy. And this is a program that wasn't just started by Chick-fil-A Academy, I'm a Chick-fil-A Foundation, but it was started by a, a coalition of people at Chick-fil-A. So I don't want to take personal, full personal credit for it. It was It's a great program that we've been a part of. Now, it uh, seems, though, that you are leveraging, again, a network because surely – like in my brain, I'm counting the number of people and things that you probably have to have involved to pull yeah. something like this off and the impact you've had in this um, period of time that you've been been working. Uh, is it, is Am I right? Am I right to say that you're leveraging networks of people? So you have a seed of an idea, then you bring in other corporate sponsors, other government, other entities, other organizations, nonprofit and otherwise to make some of these things happen. We are. We have a we have a saying that you can't lead if you're alone. Yeah. And so we are leveraging partnerships and sometimes partnerships are difficult because uh, and we're, we're always quick. To refrain from taking credit. Yeah, because this isn't about us. A eh? and when you're in partnership, there are lots of ideas and there's lots of heavy lifting. And that's the whole purpose of partnership, that we're better together. And uh, but we have we don't mind being first. We don't mind recruiting others. We don't mind uh, bringing others to the fight to help us. And really, at the end of the day, we're not the hero. 
It takes, uh, uh, it's like our old academy days. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so very true, man. And the credit has to go to the people you're trying to help. Right. Right. And uh, let me ask another sort of particular question. Within the west side of Atlanta, have you seen personal impact and or change or effect of the work that you wanted to do, which was the seed of all these ideas in the first place? Have I seen personal impact on me or have I seen impact in the community? In the community. Have you seen change happen oh, there like you probably vision? Without question. So uh, we now have a, a meeting every other Friday on the west side of Atlanta. Uh, when we started the meeting, it was only about 80 people who came out. Now we, we routinely get 200 plus people. Uh, those people come from all over the city. It's one of the most diverse meetings of the year uh, of, of, of any place. And what, what uh, who's gathering? What's the purpose of the meeting? So the purpose of the meeting is to discuss. So let me take a step back. The, the, we are working to uplift the west side of Atlanta, to rent it, to redevelop it, to make sure that it's a place where education, safety, all reign, and the people are able to stay in place. And so we we realized when we started this work that there were a lot of people who were also putting their shoulder to this work as well. But many of them were not discussing uh, with one another what was going on. There was there was very little communication, lots of silos. So we created this meeting to to help bridge that communication gap and create some collaboration. Uh, I joked that there were five different YMCA's being planned on the west side of Atlanta. <laughs> wow. And none of them knew anything about it to include the YMCA because they didn't have any plans to be on the west side of Atlanta. <laughs> Uh, wow. And so when we start this meeting, we just wanted to bring people together and we wanted people to stand up and say, this is what I'm doing. And so we wanted people to present. And so we started off because it's Chick-fil-A uh, and Dan was very adamant about I want to have a spiritual component to this. OK. And so it's a 7 a.m. meeting. Mm. It's at a time in which people can't say I have a conflict. Right. We serve Chick-fil-A. Nice. And we have a devotion speaker at 7 a.m. Uh, this past Friday, December 1st, Lecrae was our devotion speaker. Wow. And people came out to hear Lecrae. I bet they did. And then after that, we had Atlanta Public Schools talk about the new and innovative programs that they're doing on the west side of Atlanta. Nice. As part of that, we also have everybody, all 250 plus who were there this past Friday, talk about or at least introduce themselves. They don't they don't get a chance to really have a conversation or talk much, but they can say, hey, my name is Rodney Bullard. I'm with Chick-fil-A. And what happens is we notice people say, oh, I need to meet such and such after the meeting. Yeah. And we've created lots of collaboration that has just grown organically and created all sorts of goodness off of this meeting. Hmm. And so this meeting, you asked me what what's the personal impact. The community, this in many ways, is the gateway to the West Side. For a lot of folks, if I'm from a wealthy part of town or if I'm different than this neighborhood, then I don't know much about it. And it's kind of foreign and strange to me. But I can come to this meeting and this can be my 
my window into this mm. into this community. I can sit next to someone, a resident from this community. I can feel comfortable, and then I can dip my toe in and get involved. Yeah, and we found that to be the case. Wow. Um, to to manage so, so this is a a huge operation you're putting together, and at the heart of it though is the desire to serve. It's a social entrepreneurship entity as best as I can see it and as I understand them to be. Um, what do you think are the critical characteristics that it takes for you to be successful at your job? I think it's important for any leader to have compassion. Hmm. And I think oftentimes we discount that. But if it's going to truly be about results and relationship, then we have to understand and be compassionate for the people that we are serving, for the people that we're leading. Uh, And in my job in particular, the results that we are seeking uh, have an element of compassion because we're trying to improve the lives of our neighbors, our brothers and our sisters. And there is no good reason to do it other than to improve their lives. Right. Uh, we could be doing something else. We could be making money. We could be selling chicken. We could be trying cases. We could be doing something else. Right. The only good reason to be there is to improve someone else's life. Uh, and that's a high calling. Yeah. Well, from a skill level, and I agree with you, compassion is important. From a skill level, what are some skills that are important to have to be effective once you find you have that compassion and you want to execute on some of these things, particularly because someone may not be Rodney Bullard and and, and run this huge foundation and have the, the, the resources of a Chick-fil-A, but they may be trying to do something in their community. Um, yeah, what, what kind of skills does it take on a, a tactical level to be successful at doing what you're doing? So I think it takes a willingness to partner with people yeah. and to connect with people. And, and it takes a patience because partnering with people is not easy. Uh, partnering with people means that you have to compromise. I think it takes uh, vision casting. You have to be able to uh, to be able to create a vision, create a strategy, and then articulate that strategy in a manner that's compelling to bring others to the table. Mm. And that's important. Uh, I think it also takes uh, a sense of organization. Yeah, we have created an organization called the Westside Future Fund, we being the corporations of Atlanta, that allows us to to unify so that we are aren't just single actors going off and doing our own thing, but allows us to unify. And so I do think that it takes organization yeah, uh, and it takes humility because one of the problems that we have in our communities is everybody wants to start their own thing. Yeah. And everybody doesn't need to start their own thing. Hmm. Uh, oftentimes there are organizations, efforts, movements that are just fine. They need your help. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a matter of humility. Got it. No, that's good. I, oh, I hope people hear that one. Because I think that like you've shown, people working together and maximizing the effort, efforts of others can go much further than trying to reproduce the same efforts on your own. Yes. All out of the five uh YMCA's. Yes. Um, do you, so financially, I was actually um, just speaking to a group of uh, crew 
uh, leaders and they talked about how they struggle with how people may have to make financial sacrifices to want to serve for them into the ministry for you to maybe in a nonprofit um, arena. Um, is that a thing that you see people struggling with? And then how can a person who thinks about that think through um, that type of decision they may have to make? So, so I, uh, I don't know if I asked that well, like you may well, make you, less to do volunteering. Yeah, you, you did. So I truly believe I had a law school professor who, who said, Rodney, you should always strive to do good as you do well. Yeah. And I believe that part of the ministry is, for me at least, is taking care of my family. Right. And being having the having the fiscal and financial ability to influence things because hmm. what I've learned at Chick-fil-A is that money is not bad. It's, it's money used improper, improperly is the root of all evil. Right. Uh, but money is influence and leverage. And so, yes, there are definitely those who are called to labor in the vineyard and to take a pay cut or not to have as much as they could have. Yeah. But I don't think that we have to be so, um, I don't think that we have to automatically assume that that's our calling or that's the way in which it has to be. I think we can still work typical, normal jobs. I think we can be a lawyer, a doctor. I think we can, uh, we can do those things and still give back. Right. Your life is an example. Absolutely. And I think our ministry can be anywhere and everywhere. And in fact, it's more powerful when the millions reach the millions versus the one or two trying to reach the millions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally, I totally hear that. I, um, I want to ask you one more question about what you're doing at Chick-fil-A and you talked early on about networking I've read in books like How to Win Friends and Influence People and those kind of things yeah. that also volunteer organizations are a good place to build your network. Um, would you agree with that in your experience? Wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. The, uh, the nonprofit organizations in, in almost every city in America are full of for-profit people who have been very successful and uh, people who you can connect with, learn from, uh, and get a chance to to advance your career. Yeah. I can think of numerous stories in which you uh, could do that. Kat Cole, uh, who was former CEO of Cinnabon, she is uh, still climbing the corporate ladder. Uh, she started with boards here in Atlanta, and she got to know people, and that accelerated her career. Hmm. Uh, and so you definitely can do that, and I think it's a great way to do that. Um, you, you seem like you navigate these environments extraordinarily effectively. Um, have you ever had to deal with any kind of bias either in your work or as you've dealt with some of the work in, in the foundation? Every day. Hmm. What's an example if you want to share um, or like a typical sure. situation? Yeah. I'm not sure if I'll share an example, but I think, um, uh, or how, let me ask it this way. If you yeah. could change some things 
to make it easier for somebody coming behind you so that they didn't have to deal with that type of thing? What are some obstacles you'd pull out of the way? So I think the bias comes from different angles. And so it just depends on where you're looking at. If, if you're looking, if I'm talking to corporate America, I would say the work of community, the work of foundations is work that is beneficial to your brand. It is work that is beneficial to the community and it's work that at the end of the day is going to make you stronger financially and the bottom line. And it's, it's our reasonable service. It's our obligation. So sometimes the bias of saying, well, that's that work is pithy. No, that work is leadership. And, and don't don't put someone in it that uh, is it's just a retirement position or it's a, a position to send them out the pasture. Truly see it as as leadership in that community. And, and I think if you take care of your community, your community will take care of you. Hmm. Uh, and so that's one angle. I think the other angle of, again, just um, race is, is, is ever present. And, uh, and the soft bigotry of low expectations is, is always there. Uh, and so we just have to overcome that. And yeah. frankly... It's one of those things that you, you can't worry about. It's one of those things you can't change other than to be as good as you can be. And if you if you shoot for something and have a greater purpose beyond self, then that will take care of itself, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I um I, I gotta be honest with you, man. I feel extraordinarily <laughs> inadequate right now, man, listening to all the amazing things you've done. And on top of all that, um, you've written a book about this as well, uh, where you talk about being heroes. And I think, um, I was able to read, uh, the first chapter of your book. Um, and we'll put a link where folks can download that first chapter and perhaps purchase it themselves. Um, but I, I, I like the, I created this platform in part to, to share stories like yours. And one of the best ways to share the story beyond this conversation is for people to read your book. What I liked about what I saw though, is I feel inadequate because I'm like, man, I'm not starting a multi-million dollar, you know, international foundation partnering with all these folks. But what made me feel good about myself again, as I think about what I read is how you talked about there are big heroes doing work like what you're doing and there are smaller heroes doing everyday work. Um, how, can you can you make that real for the folks who are listening? Like, what do you mean when you when you said that in, in the book you wrote? Yeah. So oftentimes, so so the premise of the book, Heroes Wanted, heroeswantedbook.com, please uh, go there, download a chapter, take a look at it, please uh, uh, buy a copy. But the premise of the book is very simple, that anybody and everybody can be a hero and that we have an obligation to do so. And even more so, we have the capacity to do so. Oftentimes we think, I can't be a hero. That's somebody who rushes into a burning building and saves somebody. That's somebody who is a Navy SEAL. That's somebody who does something that I don't do. I need to be rich. I need to be famous. I need to be X, Y, and Z. And I'm none of those things. And some of those are big heroes, big H heroes, as as we call them in the book. Mother Teresa was a big H hero. Uh, Gandhi, big H hero. Uh, Dr. King, big H hero, started movements, uh, did things that uh, we still live off of the fruits of their labor today. But 
you know, I don't have to be a big age hero. Yeah. I may be one and I may get to that stage one day. I may have an opportunity because some of it's about opportunity, not about uh, anything else. But I there's a story in the book and I don't think it's in the first chapter, but it's, it's a story that I particularly appreciate. I have a friend, um, Greg Ellison, Dr. Greg Ellison. He is a, a professor of divinity at Emory Candler School of Theology. Yeah. And Greg tells the story of when he was a young boy, he had an Aunt Dot and that he loved Aunt Dot. Yep. It's at the first part of the first chapter. Yeah. And so uh, he uh, he loved Aunt Dot and he. Uh, he said, Aunt Dad, how do I change the world? And Aunt Dad said, baby, I don't know how you change the world, but I know you can change the three feet around you. Yeah. And so that's what little eight year olds do. They, it might be a smile. It might be a touch. It might just be a recognition of someone that you typically walk past. Right. Uh, it's a connection. Uh, and it can lead to a greater heroism as well. But at the end of the day, I realized that we can change the world. Hmm. We really can. Are there any the experiences I, you have where someone did a small thing like that? I know you talked about your uh, teacher whenever you started off in school. Which, which, would that be one of those small age hero type of experiences? Yeah. And, and, you know, all things are relative. For me, that was a big age hero experience. But, yes, it, it probably was. It, it was from the characterization of the book a small age hero experience. I had a, a teacher in the first grade, Mrs. Adams, who, uh, when everyone else said that, that I couldn't read on grade level, she decided that she was going to take me and tutor me for the summer. And because of her extra efforts, I was reading two and three grade levels beyond my peers. Nice. And, and frankly, you and I wouldn't know each other because we wouldn't have met at the Air Force Academy. Right. If it weren't for Mrs. Adams. So for me, she was a big age hero, but, I realized that we all can manage our own three feet. And if you manage your three feet and I manage mine and your three feet and the people that you've touched them manage theirs and the people that they touch them manage theirs, that that's a ripple effect that allows us to change communities, that allows us to change uh, the world, essentially. What are some other, aside from managing your three feet, uh, you have a number of different chapters to talk about different pieces. Um, there are a bunch of C's you want to run through those and let them know, like, here's what it takes to be a hero. I know there's calling commitment, compassion, yeah. connection, conviction, community, courage, charity, confidence. Um, out of those, which one really stands out to you as like, you know, one of the premier ones for you and that you see where people could kind of focus on to make a difference. So courage really stands out for me. Uh, the book encourages you to, to have the courage to make a difference. And that doesn't mean that you aren't uneasy. That doesn't mean that you don't have fear. That doesn't mean that you have all the answers. It means that you uh, get past all of that. And even more so, it doesn't mean that you stay in your own, uh, in your own place. I recall a story at Chick-fil-A we were going to the west side of Atlanta. We had all the Chick-fil-A employees at corporate and we were down at the Dr. King Center, the Martin Luther King Center. Okay. In Atlanta. 
And someone came up to me and said, Rodney, how do I how do I connect with this community? I have no idea how to do it. I feel so inadequate. Yeah. And I said, well, you just first start by being a friend. Hmm. Really, what they were saying was I'm white. I come from privilege relative to this community. I don't know how to bridge the difference. I don't know how to be comfortable in what's overtly uncomfortable. And that takes courage to do that. Yeah. And I think particularly in the time in which we're in now, we have to have the courage to set aside all that is different about us and someone else and and bridge that divide. Yeah. And that starts by being a friend. That starts by finding commonality. And there are lots of things we can be different about. But for the most part, we have more in common than we have difference. Yeah, I think you hear people again at this uh, um, talk that I was having today. There was one person who was speaking, saying that they just they were like, how many, you know, it's, this is a white person who was trying to bridge a cultural gap. So it's like, how many people do we need to know and how many cultures do I have to understand and how much of each culture do I need to study and learn? And, and I think what you're saying is just start by being a friend to one person and build from there. Absolutely. And that's it, man. I, I think that we uh we make it more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is powerful when we have the courage, because that's the hard part. It's not difficult uh, conceptually, but it is difficult if we decide to artificially put up barriers and to rely upon barriers that are uh, that they're not worthy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, um, you also have uh, a lot of elements where you express your Christian faith in the book. And um, in this day and age where Christianity at times has been polarized um, in certain circumstances, even seen as a negative place to come from, a critical, a judgmental place to come from, what gave you the comfort to, to be so, um, to so forthright about your faith? And then what value do you think it brings to the table? So I'll, I'll be honest with you. I originally struggled with whether or not I want to articulate my faith in this, in this book. Right. Uh, because I didn't want it to be a hindrance uh, but I do think that one of the elements of being a hero is that you have to bring your authentic self mm. and you have to come as who you are. And I'm a Christian. Yeah. My father, Baptist minister, uh, long before Chick-fil-A, uh, I knew God and I've known God and I've known that he has kept me. And I do believe that all of the things that I believe about being a hero come from my walk and my understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. Yeah. And so I don't mind articulating that. Right. Uh, I think that there is enough commonality in the book. And even if that's not your persuasion for us to agree on the elements of a hero. But I learned at Chick-fil-A and and it probably has been strengthened during my time at Chick-fil-A that you can't put your light up under 
a bushel. Yeah. And that you do need to go out and be your authentic self. And that now that's very clear. That doesn't mean that you are biased against someone else. Right. That does not mean that somehow you discriminate against someone else or you're better than someone else. It's just you're bringing who you are to the table. And if you do that, then you can connect with people authentically and real. And I can't I think the thing that would be awesome for those who may struggle with that a bit here and that I did want to talk about it. But just I encourage them to look at your life and what you've done and how you've done it. Um, I just went to the website, the Junior Achievement website, to see some of those images and pictures of what's going on at the finance park and BizTown. And to know that that came out of the place of your faith ought to encourage people that extraordinarily powerful and good things for the world and for those who are uh, who need the help that you have to give can come from a place uh, of a faith in Christ. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you put Absolutely, that out there. Man. I mean, I, I think about Dr. King. Yeah. And the civil rights movement that was born out of faith. Yeah. That wasn't born out of a radicalism. Right. Uh, it wasn't born out of a political movement. It was born out of faith. Mm. Uh, I think of Rosa Parks, who had the courage to say, no, I'm not moving. When three other blacks said, I will go to the back of the bus. That takes a conviction that is rooted in faith. Mm. Uh, So at the end of the day, faith has guided us, particularly in the African-American community, and we can't forget that. And and, and I'm okay uh, daily reminding myself of that. Yeah, yeah. And you've modernized it and made it powerful and juiced it up with Mr. Kathy's money and and and, the, and and power to have a huge impact out there in Atlanta and across the country. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I mean, I've I've learned a great deal from Chick Fil A as to as to the power of 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 a biblical business and the, and the power of, uh, of faith in just your daily walk. It doesn't necessarily have to be in your talk. You don't have to beat anybody over the head. Right. Uh, but just through your walk. I, um, I wonder who have been some important mentors, um, in your life and in your career. Yeah. So I mentioned Will Gunn earlier. Uh, Will Gunn uh, was a Colonel in the air force. He retired, uh, from the air force. He was, very intentional about spending time and connecting with younger officers in the Air Force and not just offering lip service, but calling, checking up, uh, asking what's your next step. Uh, that has led me in so many different ways and informs uh, how I walk. Mm. I, I just met a young lady. Uh, we helped start a program uh, for the Atlanta Falcons and we gifted it to them. Uh, it was, it's called the West side ambassadors and we take kids from the West side of Atlanta and they actually get a chance to work in the suites of the Mercedes Benz stadium. So wow. they're there with the wealthiest of wealthy. Right. And so I, I met this young lady, Janisha, and she was as bubbly and effervescent as she can be, but she was not talking to anybody, uh, in the suites. And I, and I started to just take her around and introduce her to people that I knew there one by one. Hmm. Uh, so that when she sees them at the next game, they know her. Wow. And I instructed her not only 
hey, do you now know them? But you need to remind them, hey, great seeing you again. I saw you last time. Rodney introduced us. Uh, and then remind them your goals. And I really, hey, just wanted to give you an update on I'm interested in going to law school. I'm, I'm applying to Columbia undergrad. And uh, and hey, I hope you're having a good game. And I'm just excited to be here. This is a great, great program that I'm a part of. Yeah. So that their dreams, your dreams become their dreams and they can co-sign on that. Very nice. And I learned that really from from Will Gunn because he he did that for for me. Mm. Uh, and and so I wonderful mentors like that. And then some people you just learn from afar, you see from afar how they deal with struggle, how they deal with adversity. Have there any particular people stood out like that to you? Um, a number of people, my grandmother in particular, man, uh, my grandmother grew up, uh, in a time in which women weren't allowed to do much. She had gone to college, had the college degree, but the best job she could get even with a college degree was working at a department store Hmm. and uh, black college educated in the South Hmm. working in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But even though she worked at a department store by day, she started a uh, own neighborhood store uh, by evening. Wow. And she didn't let the bias of others. She didn't let the circumstances of her death deter her from being an entrepreneur. Wow. And and I appreciated that. And I, and I saw that and it's always resonated with me that if there is not a way, then make a way. Hmm. If someone's standing in the way, then go around them. Uh, and don't be so concerned with what other people say. The only applause we really need to be concerned about is that of nail scarred hands. Hmm. And so uh, my grandmother was was a great example for me in that. Um, so I know one book you would want people to have as a gift, but they got to buy that gift. That's a uh, hero is wanted. Be your book that's coming out. Um, and it's coming out in February. It is. So, uh, black history month heroes wanted book.com. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. Please pre-order it. Uh, the reason why I asked you to pre-order is, uh, one, you can it will be shipped to you immediately as soon as it comes out. And secondly, um, you know, we're 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 hopeful that we continue to to show up on list right now. We are uh, number one in our category of new releases on Amazon, even though the book hasn't come out and even more so beyond any accolades for the book, because this isn't about that. I think that the book uh, is a gift and I hope that the book will be edifying uh, to everyone who reads it. So I already got my my mind ordered. Hopefully the electronic download comes out immediately on February 20th. I don't want any delays, Rodney. You call Amazon, tell them, get it to me right on time. I got you, man. We got some connections, man. <laughs> now, what are three books you give as a gift other than your book? So I would get uh, give Killer Angels. It's a book on the Civil War uh, and leadership uh, surrounding the Civil War. And I, and I love the Civil War. So two of these books are going to be that. Um, I would give a team of rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, it's an excellent book about Lincoln and leadership and how he compromised, how he, uh, how he managed people. And particularly I think about that book when I think about community partnership. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a great book. And I think about never eat alone by Keith Ferrazzi, Mm. uh, never eat alone's a, a timeless book and that we all have to eat, but we don't have to do it alone. 
and it's a networking book, we can uh, we can have radical courage to do that. Uh, in fact, I have a friend, Gary Graverson, who's releasing a book soon, so I'll give you a four. And his book is 10 Seconds of Insane Courage. Okay. And his whole thing is he wants to muster up his life 10 seconds of insane courage at a time to do something. And he was a, a student at the University of Georgia, and he said, I want to meet uh, I want to meet Vince Dooley. So he just, 10 seconds of insane courage, he, he figured out how to meet Vince Dooley. And he had that opportunity, and he went for it. Uh, I want to start a company. Ten seconds of insane courage. He had an opportunity, and he just wrote a business plan. It was, it was like ridiculous to do it. His business now, his business is now doing very well. And Garrett uh, truly believes that, and I want to make sure I do this justice. But he truly believes that if you can muster up just this insane courage to do something that you have always wanted to do, or that you really want to do in that moment, uh, and that you just go for it. And so I think that's a, that's a very interesting book from that standpoint. I think it's no different than, than Heroes Wanted in the sense that uh, we often limit ourselves. And the soft bigotry of low expectations is often uh, implemented by ourselves on ourselves. And so that's that's an important piece. When I, when I was going to law school, people would say, well, Rodney, don't, don't apply to top 10 law schools. Mm. Well, why not? Because uh, you might not get in. Well, I won't get in if I don't apply. <laughs> I know that. So, uh, so again, 10 seconds of insane courage. Do you plan on being some kind of a higher level government official? I feel like President Rodney Bullard's resumes, who I've been reading uh, all along. Man, I tell you, Chick-fil-A is a, has been a wonderful place for me. And uh and we're going to see where God leads me and where God takes me. And right now, uh, he has me here, and, and I'm blessed to be here and uh, and blessed to help in this way. All right. Well, people come and knocking on your doors your whole career, man. Uh, you know, I, I won't be surprised if one of them, if they haven't come knocking already, they're going to be coming knocking. Well, we will see how God moves, man. And, and I appreciate you, man. I, I think this podcast, if I haven't said it already, is, uh, is tremendous leadership. Uh, communication is is the essence of leadership. If you can't communicate as a leader, you can't inspire people, you can't move people, you can't change the world. And so uh, I, 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 kudos to you, man, for this, quite frankly. And thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you, Rodney. I want to ask you one last thing before we go. What do you do for fun, man? What's one thing you do for fun? I'm a football uh, fanatic, man. Go dogs. Uh, <laughs> So uh, <laughs> my dogs are in the uh, Final Four. Yes, they are. We actually, we actually have the national championship game here, sponsored by Chick Fil A. Hey, uh, we will have an in-game uh, commercial, Chick Fil A Foundation. So look out for that. Um, but uh, so what you're saying is, I have a spot in the box with you if I drive out to Atlanta. Look here, man. I'll tell you this. You come on out. We're at least going to tailgate. We're going to do our best. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm sure the list of, of folks is way longer than the one I can get on. So it's all good, man. If people want to find you, where can they find you online? Sure. So they can find me at Rodney Bullard, uh, Facebook, Rodney Bullard, LinkedIn, Rodney Bullard, Twitter. Uh, I'm the only one out there that I claim. 
Right. Uh, there's another Rodney Bullard down in Albany, Georgia, but uh, he hadn't done anything to get me in trouble yet. But online, Rodney Bullard, Facebook, Rodney Bullard, LinkedIn, even more so, I really would encourage you to go to heroeswantedbook.com and, uh, and you can find me there. Very nice. Rodney, it's, it's been a pleasure. And my guest today has been Rodney Bullard. Rodney, thanks for coming on today. Hey, man, thank you. I appreciate you. Love you and continue to do great things.